Bob Harrington from Stanford University, and I'm really excited to announce going back to the heart of cardiology, the fourth annual conference. It'll be held this year in Anaheim, California, December 8th through 10th. It's a great opportunity to get a couple of days of prevention through structural heart disease intervention type of education, great opportunity for networking, meeting with friends in beautiful, warm Southern California. To register, go to heartofcardio.com. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome aboard, Cardio Nerds. In this episode, we dive headfirst into the fascinating and often complex world of arrhythmias in patients with cancer. It's my honor to introduce one of the chairs of the Cardio Oncology Series, Dr. Giselle Suero Abuero, a fellow in cardiovascular medicine at MGH, Harvard Medical School, and has a super passionate interest in cardio oncology, as you all know already, and multimodality cardiac imaging. Welcome, Giselle. Thank you, Dan. Let me introduce who's leading this interesting episode, our fit lead, Dr. Katan Fida, who is a third-year internal medicine resident and incoming cardiology fellow at Texas Tech University of El Paso. He's also a former Cardinals Academy fellow. Welcome, Katan. Thanks for the introduction, Giselle. I really enjoyed planning this discussion and cannot wait to learn all about the intersection of electrophysiology and cardio-oncology. Speaking of EP, I am thrilled to also have joining us Dr. Colin Blomito, Cardiology Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, House Faculty within the Cardioners Academy and Co-Chair for the Cardioners Atrial Fibrillation Series. Colin will be staying at Penn's for EP Fellowship. Welcome, Colin. Hi, Katan, Giselle, and Dan. I am super, super excited to be here for a lot of reasons, but one, as everyone probably already knows by now, arrhythmias are one of my favorite. So I have the incredible honor for this episode of welcoming our expert, Dr. Michael Fradley. Dr. Fradley obtained his medical degree at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and remained in Baltimore at the Osler Internal Medicine Residency Training Program at Johns Hopkins, after which he went to MGH for Cardiology Fellowship and then came to Penn for Electrophysiology and is a combined expert in both electrophysiology and cardio-oncology. He is also the section chief of the consultative cardiology section and the medical director of the Thalheimer Center for Cardio-Oncology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And just personally, I've had the absolute pleasure of working with Dr. Fradley a bunch of different times. We have really kind of the unique position of having a cardio-oncology consult service. And that cardio-oncology consult service is staffed by incredible faculty like Dr. Fradley. And I've seen innumerable patients where Dr. Fradley has this incredible, thoughtful, holistic approach that I, I'm really excited that you guys will get to see today, really putting all of the pieces together and thinking about the entire patient as a whole and not just their heart and their cardiology issues, but really how does this affect their cancer care? How does this affect their overall care and quality of life? And he's just such a pleasure to work with. So welcome, Dr. Fradley. Well, thank you so much, Colin, Giselle, Kazan, for that really, really warm and kind introduction. And I'm thrilled to be able to participate with Cardio Nerds on this important topic. Really looking forward to the discussion. Great. 
So let's get started with a case from our CardioNerds clinic. Miss Afibi is a 55-year-old female with hypertension who has been undergoing treatment for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Initially, she received fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab and had a partial response. However, it needed to be started recently on ibrutinib daily. She is in the clinic today for a follow-up and complained of experiencing palpitations and shortness of breath several times per day in the last two weeks. On exam, her blood pressure, heart rates were normal, and her basic labs, electrocardiogram, and physical exam were unremarkable. Dr. Fratley, how common are arrhythmias in patients with cancer, and what are the main mechanisms related to their development? Well, Giselle, that's a great question. What we have come to realize is that arrhythmias are actually quite common in cancer patients. There's many different reasons why arrhythmias may develop in the cancer patient population. First off, on average, around 5% of individuals who have cancer or a history of cancer are going to develop atrial fibrillation. Obviously, other arrhythmias can occur, although they tend to be less frequent than atrial fibrillation. Now, there's a lot of theories as to why these arrhythmias can develop. One of the big theories is systemic inflammation. We know that inflammation can lead to atrial fibrillation in the absence of cancer, but cancer is a pro-inflammatory state. And so we think that likely has some impact on the development of arrhythmias. Another reason are the cancer therapeutics themselves. These cancer therapeutics can have direct arrhythmogenic effects where they may lead to other types of cardiotoxicities that can increase the risk of developing arrhythmia. For example, heart failure or myocarditis, which can then be the nidus for developing an arrhythmia. And then lastly, just the fact that there are multiple shared risk factors between cancer and cardiovascular disease and Some of those drivers that we see that may lead to the development of cardiovascular issues in the general population are shared with the drivers that lead to cancer. And so that overlap is likely a reason for these increased rates of cardiovascular events in the cancer patient population. Have you pondered the chicken and egg conundrum of cancer and arrhythmias? I know I have. For arrhythmias in patients with cancer, Some studies have proposed a bidirectional link. For example, patients with cancers have a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation. And those with atrial fibrillation had increased incidence of cancer. Dr. Bradley, can you discuss the concepts more and share if there are risk factors that predispose patients with cancer to develop arrhythmias? Yeah, this is a really important point. This whole concept of the bidirectional risk of cancer and cardiovascular disease is one that has been really gaining a lot of attention over the last several years. And that the concept is that there are drivers from the cancer standpoint that lead to the development of cardiovascular disease, but there are also cardiovascular drivers that lead to the development of cancer. And this interplay is likely a large part of why we see elevated cardiovascular adverse events in cancer patients, including arrhythmias. We know, for example, that hypertension is a very common adverse cardiovascular event or cardiovascular risk factor that occurs in cancer patients. In fact, upwards of 30 or more percent of individuals who develop cancer will also have hypertension. So those same drivers that lead to hypertension, we know that hypertension is a driver for the development of arrhythmias. So, so much of these risk factors and diseases are interrelated with one another and increase 
the incidence and prevalence of cardiovascular disease and arrhythmia specifically? It looks like there are a lot of risk factors that are overlapping. We talked about this bi-directional risk, and we briefly touched a little bit on different cardiotoxicities. And I just wanted to sort of delve a little bit deeper into the cardiotoxicities. You had brought up that there is some drug-induced cardiotoxicities. So going a little bit deeper there, what are the main cancer treatments associated with arrhythmias? And then a little more specifically, so I imagine we'll go over BTK inhibitors like abrutinib. And how has this changed or evolved with sort of second generation medications like acalabrutinib? And has that gotten better or worse? Where are we in development of these medications? You know, I think it's often helpful to subdivide cancer therapeutics into various categories. So you have your cytotoxic chemotherapies. These are sort of your more kind of historical treatments that have been around for many decades. And there are certainly various treatments in that group that are known to cause arrhythmias or at least have a potential association. Yes. So anthracyclines, which is a broad class of cancer therapeutics used to treat various cancers from breast cancer to leukemias and lymphomas to sarcomas, have had an association in some reports with the development of atrial fibrillation, although there have been other more recent meta-analyses that have suggested there may not truly be an increased risk with anthracyclines. But at least as of right now, most people still believe that there is some increased risk with anthracycline. Now, that risk seems to be in the acute phase, so oftentimes in the setting of the infusion. But then the other issue is that anthracyclines can lead to left ventricular dysfunction and heart failure. And certainly when people develop left ventricular dysfunction and heart failure, whatever the etiology may be, that increases the likelihood of developing arrhythmias. And so in particular, patients who develop an adriamycin or an anthracycline-induced cardiomyopathy are absolutely at an increased risk of developing atrial fibrillation. Another cytotoxic chemotherapy that is commonly associated with atrial fibrillation is melphalan, which is an alkylating agent. Now, melphalan uh, used to be utilized in many different settings, but now you'll see that it's primarily used as a preconditioning chemotherapy prior to stem cell transplantation, particularly autologous stem cell transplantation, although occasionally with allogeneic as well. And rates in the literature have been reported between around 10 and 15% for the development of atrial fibrillation after treatment with melphalan. And so for that reason, you end up seeing quite a few patients who are post-stem cell transplantation who develop atrial fibrillation. I think your next broad grouping are your targeted therapeutics. These are going to be your various tyrosine kinase inhibitors and other inhibitors of these intracellular signaling pathways. And that's where the BTK inhibitors come in. And these BTK inhibitors are used predominantly for B-cell malignancies, and, and atrial fibrillation is a very significant issue with the use of these agents, particularly ibrutinib. Although the second-generation BTK inhibitors like acalabrut and xanabrutinib certainly do have some risk of atrial fibrillation. And then you have your immunotherapies, and these are your treatments that focus on activating or harnessing the body's immune system to actually attack the cancer. And there are a lot of various types of immunotherapy. The first grouping are your checkpoint inhibitors. 
And checkpoint inhibitors are commonly associated with myocarditis, but arrhythmias are also a big issue with this group, not only as a consequence of myocarditis, but can also occur independent of any sort of inflammatory infiltrate into the myocardium. And there's actually some mechanistic studies that have evaluated the reasons why we may see arrhythmias in the absence of myocarditis. You have CAR-T therapy, um, which are engineered T-cells that are created to specifically attack antigens found on cancer cells. And in this situation, atrial fibrillation is quite common in the setting of what's called cytokine release syndrome, which is a overwhelming inflammatory response that develops during the CAR-T infusion. And then I think the last group that is worth talking about is radiation. And certainly we know that radiation to the chest has the potential to cause arrhythmias, although the direct relationship between radiation and arrhythmia development is not as obvious or as clear as I think many people believe it to be. It's a little bit more of an uncertain relationship. Dr. Fradley, our patient, Ms. AFib, received the chemotherapy just mentioned, BTK inhibitor, ibrutinib, which increases her risk of AFib, as you briefly mentioned, in these cases, should we screen for arrhythmias before or proactively monitor patients during the treatment with specific proarrhythmic cancer therapies? Yeah, that's a really good question and one that is actually somewhat controversial. You know, as you've pointed out, BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib in particular, is strongly associated with the development of atrial arrhythmias. Again, there is a wide variation in the literature, but in one very good, high-quality meta-analysis, the pooled rate of atrial fibrillation in the setting of ibrutinib use was 3.3 per 100-person years, compared to 0.76 per 100-person years for non-ibrutinib regimen. So it is a pretty significant risk for leading to atrial fibrillation. Unfortunately, at this point, while there are risk factors that have been identified like left atrial enlargement and age and prior history of atrial fibrillation, we don't really have any good quality data to support the broad use of screening for atrial fibrillation. In my practice, you know, I think it's reasonable to get an EKG in these patients. That's always good to have a baseline EKG. And there's some potential benefits to getting an echocardiogram because there are some data to suggest that BTK inhibitors, particularly ibrutinib, may have some increased rates of heart failure. But in terms of any additional monitoring, at this point, it's really not something that can be broadly recommended without some other rationale for ordering the screen. I would love to give you another update on our patient. After her initial visit, she was referred to the cardiology team and given her symptoms during ibrutinib therapy, she underwent ambulatory EKG monitoring with a two-week device. And this demonstrated a 15% burden on FIB with a rapid ventricular response, and the symptoms she reported of palpitations actually correlated with the AF events. She also had an echocardiogram, as you mentioned, and this showed a dilated left atrium, a normal LB function, and no hemodynamically significant valvular abnormalities. Dr. Fratley, what are the main considerations when managing this diagnosis of atrial fibrillation in our patient, and how do you decide on rate versus rhythm control? Well, whenever we are thinking about how to manage atrial arrhythmias in cancer patients, 
you know, we really are going to apply the same principles that we would for the general population that has atrial fibrillation, but with the lens of their cancer and their cancer treatments. And because of that, we have to take a somewhat nuanced approach. But at its most basic level, you are still going to apply the same general principles. So from a rate versus rhythm control standpoint, we're really basing a lot of this on symptoms. So a person who is symptomatic, we're going to pursue a rhythm control strategy. And if the person's asymptomatic, then we're going to pursue a rate control strategy, just like we would any other patient. Now, I will say that uh, occasionally we'll be a little bit more aggressive with rhythm control in some of these patients if, for example, the atrial fibrillation is becoming so challenging to control and the AFib is actually becoming a barrier for the oncology team to adequately deliver the treatments that they think are necessary. But outside of that one particularly unique situation, really, I base a lot of this on symptomatology. Now, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in a bit more detail. But as you begin thinking about the various agents that you might utilize for either rate versus rhythm control, at least from a pharmacologic standpoint, we do need to be very, very mindful of drug-drug interactions. And that's something that many times we don't have to think about quite so concretely in the general population, but in the cancer patients, that becomes something that is really at the forefront of our decision-making in terms of choosing the agents to manage their disease. Managing AFib in cancer patients can be complex when it comes to anticoagulation. For primary stroke prevention, this population is often at high risk for both thromboembolic events and bleeding complications, prompting us to consider multiple factors when making treatment decisions. Dr. Fradley, how do you approach anticoagulation in these patients? So again, similar to the conversation about rate versus rhythm control, at this point, we're going to be utilizing the same principles that we would for the general population that develops atrial fibrillation. And so that would be the application of the chads vask score to determine thromboembolic risk. And if the chads vask score is greater than two for men or greater than three for women, then we should absolutely be considering anticoagulation in these individuals. Now, the caveat is that bleeding is, as you pointed out, oftentimes a more significant issue in these individuals. Many of these patients are anemic. Many of these patients are thrombocytopenic, and that might actually impact your ability to offer anticoagulation as you might otherwise in the general population. Also, some of the agents themselves lead a patient to have increased risk of bleeding due to their antiplatelet effects. That's actually something that's specific to the BTK inhibitors. We know that they affect the glycogen 6 collagen activation pathway, and that leads to platelet inhibition and increased bleeding. So we have to balance that potential risk of increased bleeding with the use of anticoagulants to reduce thromboembolism risk in the setting of atrial fibrillation. In addition, we also have to think about those drug-drug interactions. There are many different issues that can arise due to cytochrome P450 interactions, peak-lycoprotein interactions, and that will impact the decision on what anticoagulant to offer an individual. There have just been an unbelievable number of pearls here, and we're covering a, a, a lot of ground. So I just wanted to really quickly back up and kind of just summarize a couple of key points we've talked about. 
It is very common to have arrhythmias in cancer patients. And we talked about some of the pathophysiology, which we don't necessarily have to recap in detail, but there are a lot of different cancer therapies, cytotoxic chemotherapies, alkylating agents, BTK inhibitors, immunotherapies, and all of these carry some uncertain, some very certain link to arrhythmias. Our patient, Miss AFB, was prescribed a brutinib. And uh, in the setting of a brutinib, we talked about the risk of arrhythmias and the risk of atrial fibrillation and the treatment here. And it really seems like a lot of the underpinnings here are very similar to atrial fibrillation treatment as a whole. If the person is very symptomatic, then you really need to consider a upfront rhythm control approach. And then obviously the anticoagulation using similar sort of risk factor tools, but obviously have a a lot more considerations with antiplatelet effects and thrombocytopenias in patients. How do you handle patients who say would be an appropriate candidate for anticoagulation are not, you know, having significant bleeding issues are not substantially thrombocytopenic and have a CHADS-VAS score of one, but have a malignancy that might be coagulopathic? So specifically, are there certain malignancies that you think of where it would tip the scales towards anticoagulating someone who has a CHADS-VASC of one who does not have a clear indication already for anticoagulation? So that's a great question. And actually, I think that's an area that is still actively being investigated and that we need more research on. But I, I think that that, you know, really cuts to the core of the various questions that remain as it relates to appropriate treatment for these patients. You know, there's a lot of individuals that have discussed the concerns of the prothrombotic state that's associated with malignancy. And there are several publications that exist that have suggested that maybe we need to add malignancy to the CHADS-VASC score and then recalculate with that additional component. And in one of these studies, the net reclassification index was quite good when malignancy was added to the score. However, when you dive a little bit deeper into the data in that particular situation, one of the reasons why malignancy likely had increased the sensitivity and specificity of the CHAS-VAS score was that a large proportion of the individuals that were included in that study were not anticoagulated. So if you have a large population of individuals that don't get anticoagulation, we know that they're more likely to have strokes. And if you look at the data and only look at the groups of patients that received appropriate anticoagulation for traditional CHADS-VASC scores, there was actually really no significantly increased risk from malignancy in and of itself. So I think that your point, Colin, is a really important one. You know, are there specific cancers that are more prothrombotic? And there probably are, but we haven't quite figured that out, which ones are more prothrombotic from an AFib standpoint. I think it's also important to remember that prothrombotic from a venous standpoint does not necessarily mean that they're prothrombotic from an arterial standpoint. So much of what we know about these kind of hypercoagulable cancers often relates to their impact on the venous system. And so we can't necessarily translate those findings into a higher arterial thrombotic risk. 
I really appreciate like going out on that limb and sort of talking about some of the gray areas in this data. I think that's a really interesting area of research, it sounds like, and hopefully more to come in the, in the near future. I also wanted to just remind our cardio nerds fans, if they are interested, they can take a deeper dive in the complexities of anticoagulation management in patients with cancer by checking out an episode in our cardio-oncology series on thromboembolic disease in cardio-oncology with Dr. Joshua Levinson. And I would be amiss if I didn't also mention the AFib series, which the first six episodes of that, or five of the six, are really all based around anticoagulation in atrial fibrillation and a lot of specific situations and talking to a lot of experts about how those decisions are made. So another sort of adjacent area if people are interested. This is amazing. And I'm ready to talk about our next patient in our cardio nurse cardio-oncology clinic. Ms. QT Dupont is actually a 66-year-old female with a history of acute myeloid leukemia and hypothyroidism. And she presented to the hospital with dizziness in one episode of syncope. She denied any loss of consciousness, chest pain, shortness of breath, or palpitations prior to the episode. Her initial electrocardiogram shows sinus rhythm with frequent premature ventricular contractions and a QT interval corrector for heart rate or QTC of 498 milliseconds. An EKG two months earlier showed a QTC of 435 milliseconds. In terms of her treatment, she was on hydroxyria, idarubicin, citarabine, and sofran for nausea. And unfortunately, a couple weeks ago, she developed an upper respiratory infection and received a course of antibiotics with acitromycin. Dr. Fratley, how do you approach the issue of QTC prolongation in cancer patients? Well, Giselle, QT prolongation is a very important topic in the field of cardio-oncology because so many drugs that are utilized to treat cancer can also impact the QT interval. And whenever these agents are being investigated, both preclinically, but also in their phase two and, and phase three studies, the QT interval is often evaluated and scrutinized because of that potential risk for developing malignant ventricular arrhythmias and, and sudden cardiac arrest. That being said, I think it's also important to recognize that while QT prolongation is relatively common in the cancer population, I mean, there has been studies that have suggested that 20 to 30 percent of individuals will have evidence of QT prolongation from baseline once beginning cancer treatments. The fact is that malignant arrhythmias are incredibly rare. And in particular, they are quite rare when the QT interval is less than 500 milliseconds. Most events are going to happen with QT intervals of more than 500 milliseconds. And it's also important to recognize that there are many contributing factors in the cancer patient to QT interval prolongation, not just the cancer therapeutics themselves, but the other treatments that often go hand in hand in cancer treatment, medications that you suggested in this particular case, like antibiotics and antiemetic medications. There are often patient-specific factors, historical features of the patient, like endocrine abnormalities or underlying cardiovascular issues, or cancer complications as well, things like electrolyte abnormalities, all of which will contribute to QT prolongation. 
And I think one of the important things to emphasize is also that before you jump on changing a cancer treatment because of its QT prolonging risk, you really want to look and try to identify other contributors to QT interval prolongation and alter those or manage those before suggesting a change in the cancer treatment. Our patient was admitted, and while on the telemetry, she had a ventricular bigeminy with a brief runs of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia in an episode leading to 20 second runs of torsade the point. That was scary. Dr. Fratling, what should we keep in mind when encountering patients with a prolonged QTC to avoid torsade the points and how to manage it if it happens? Yeah, so certainly if a patient develops torsades, this is a significant problem and, you know, potentially a lethal arrhythmia. So it has to be taken seriously and managed very aggressively. I think the first thing that you're going to want to do in these situations is make sure that you are giving patients electrolytes. So we know that giving magnesium very early and aggressively is, is helpful and also potassium can be quite helpful. If the patient continues to be having torsades in the acute setting, you also can work on increasing the heart rate. And that can be done either pharmacologically with something like dopamine or isopril, or you can put in a temporary pacing wire and pace them faster. And the rationale behind that is that when the heart rate increases, the QT interval shortens. And then that makes torsades less likely to occur. And then at the same time, you need to be looking for QT prolonging medications, anything that could be contributing to the QT interval being prolonged and start altering that treatment regimen. Now, in the short term, in someone that's having torsades, it'd be reasonable to also hold a cancer therapeutic that might be contributing. But certainly if you have other agents, the antiemetics, the antibiotics, those may be bigger impact on the QT interval. And simply by holding those, you may be able to then reintroduce the cancer therapeutic without actually creating such substantial QT interval prolongation that the person is at risk for torsades. So this is a, a great discussion. This sort of makes me think of a two-part question here. So managing cardiovascular disease in cancer patients is very complex and can even halt cancer therapy. And that obviously affects a lot of patient outcomes and outcomes related to their cancer treatment. There's sort of a double-edged sword here between detecting arrhythmias during therapy, which can often be challenging and patients can obviously have very asymptomatic atrial fibrillation. And we talk a little bit about this in the atrial fibrillation series in terms of how much atrial fibrillation is significant, how hard should we really be looking, should you be using things like wearable technology, ILRs, which are implantable loop recorders, event monitors, things like this, because if we find very small amounts of atrial fibrillation, it's unclear what that clinically means. So the sort of the two-part question that I was wondering about from this is, is one, what role do you see these sort of mobile and wearable technologies in this space? And how aggressive are you about going and finding atrial fibrillation in a patient who, you know, you have a, a potential concern about or high risk factors for? And then part two of that is, 
you know, as we talk a lot about in cardio oncology, what we do from a cardiovascular standpoint and what we recommend can very significantly affect and alter the treatment regimen for their cancer, either causing suboptimal treatment regimens or complete halts of their chemotherapy. I know this is a very broad question, but how do you sort of balance the cardio-oncology arrhythmia risk when the arrhythmias tend to not be imminently fatal in a lot of situations with the need to continue on with their cancer therapy? Well, both are great questions and significant challenges, I think, facing those of us that do cardio-oncology. So to address your first question, the issues surrounding wearable technology and other kind of forms of digital-based technology to identify arrhythmias is an area that is really kind of exploding as it relates to research, but also day-to-day patient care. You know, wearables are becoming almost ubiquitous and patients are becoming their own healthcare consumers and taking their own EKGs and sending them to physicians for review. So I think we all have to recognize that this is part of the healthcare landscape and that we are going to be confronted with data from various devices, and we're going to have to integrate that data into our management, whether we like it or not. I think that there is a lot of opportunity to look at wearables from research and an investigational standpoint to better determine incidence of rhythm disturbances, and then also to use some of that data to help guide the big question, which is how much arrhythmia is enough to lead to adverse outcomes. And I think that's a really important point that we have not quite sorted out at this point in time. So I think that I am not necessarily recommending people who start on cancer therapeutics that are known to cause atrial fibrillation to get a wearable device if they don't already have one. But certainly I encourage individuals to utilize that device If they are noticing symptoms or, you know, have concerning findings that might indicate an arrhythmia. So this is something that can be really helpful incorporating into your day-to-day patient care. As far as your second question is concerned, I think if I remember correctly, your second question related to the balancing between providing the optimal cancer care while also managing the cardiotoxicity. And I think that this is, you know, really kind of cuts to the the philosophy of cardio-oncology which is the goal of cardio-oncology is to prevent cardiovascular disease from becoming a barrier for a patient to receive appropriate cancer therapy. The goal is always to allow the patient to receive the treatment that the oncologist thinks is most necessary and best to manage their cancer. We don't want to unnecessarily stop things. We don't want to create fear around cardiovascular conditions that can otherwise be managed and allow the patient to get the treatment that they need. Now, certainly there are circumstances that we have to be more aggressive in our decision-making to halt cancer therapeutics. For example, that person that has torsades, you're going to have to stop 
at least in the short term, anything that could be contributing to QT prolongation and then sort of reassess the situation. If you have a patient who is developing acute myocarditis on an immune checkpoint inhibitor, that could be a potentially serious or fatal event. You need to stop the checkpoint inhibitor in order to allow the heart to heal along with the use of immunosuppressive agents. If you have vasospasm and evidence of ischemia on 5-fluorouracil, you need to stop that drug. I think you have to kind of balance what is the potential severity and the potential impact on patient morbidity or mortality from the cardiovascular event. That is relatively low. Then really the job of the cardio-oncologist is to find ways to allow the treatment to continue while minimizing some of the adverse effects of the cardiovascular event. Dr. Fratley, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Being an electrophysiologist, I'm going to ask you the last but most fitting question. What makes your heart flutter about cardio-oncology? That's a great question. Cardio-oncology is such an exciting and rewarding subspecialty in cardiology for various reasons. So first of all, the patients are such an incredible group of individuals. It's really an honor and a privilege to be able to be part of their care team. These people are, you know, going through a huge life-altering diagnosis. And as a cardio-oncologist, we have the opportunity to help really focus on keeping them as healthy as possible and allowing them to have one less thing to worry about during the course of their treatments. And, you know, these patients are living longer and many cases surviving their disease. And so it's up to us to make sure that we are keeping their heart and cardiovascular system healthy so they can become long-term survivors of their cancer. And then I think Secondly, it's really exciting and rewarding to be involved in a specialty that is still relatively young. We're still learning so much about this field and about the toxicities and how to manage them and how to prevent them. And so it's really quite fun to kind of learn as we go and be a part of the foundation, the building of this specialty. So that, you know, down the road, 10, 15, 20 years from now, it's the foundation that we're all building and being a part of that will help to ultimately provide so much better care for patients in the future. And I think that really is an incredibly exciting part of doing cardio-oncology right now. Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Fradley. That really is inspiring. And your passion is absolutely infectious. So folks, that wraps up our awesomely informative episode on arrhythmias and autonomic disorders in cardio-oncology. And with that, I'll extend gratitude to our faculty expert, Dr. Michael Fravley, our fit lead, Katan, our series co-chair, Giselle, and our cross-pollination from our atrial fibrillation series, co-chair, Colin Blumenthal. We've explored the challenges of managing arrhythmic complications during cancer treatment and diagnosing pro-arrhythmic risk arrhythmias with new oncological therapies, among other important discussion points. So thank you all for such a terrific discussion. Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Tina Reddy. I'm an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy House Thomas and fourth year medical student at Tulane University. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform 
and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split. Boop. Boop.